glad that you're joining with us on Facebook tonight, and just ask you to uh, take your Bibles this evening, turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27. This, as I shared with you last week, this is the, absolutely the, um, this is like the continental divide of the book of Mark. And so what we're looking at tonight is we're looking at what happens from here on is all about Jesus heading to the cross and heading to Calvary. And in this statement tonight, it's going to shock his disciples. It's going to shock Peter because how in the world is Jesus going to be able to defeat injustice? How, is, how in the world is Jesus going to be able to conquer evil if he's killed, if he dies at Calvary? So, and of course, this is just a question that we don't think about so much because of how we've been raised and what we've been taught about the cross, living this side of Calvary. But it's what those who were so concerned about Jesus' dying and not understanding and why the cross was so offensive. So if you would this evening, we're going to go right into it this evening because this passage is so important because it reveals what we have to understand and what we also have to embrace in order to know what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. And so I'm hoping I got this microphone and everything all straightened up here this evening for you. The Bible says that Jesus' disciples left and went to Galilee, or left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Others say you were one of the other prophets. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things and Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. <clears throat> then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. Now, now get, don't miss that sentence because we say it so often. Basically, it would be like you and me saying to somebody today, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, just take up the electric chair, take up the lethal needle and follow me. That's what he's saying. Take up your cross and follow me. And the cross was the, the cruelest, the most humiliating way to be executed. So uh, when Jesus says this, this is, a, this is a shocking statement. He said, but if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is there anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Boy, you see some things missing from this that Matthew brings out. You see some things that you maybe have some questions about. This is, a, this is where Peter and Mark, and as Peter is dictating this letter to Mark, this is where this has been headed to 
all the miracles, all the signs and wonders, all the power demonstrations that we have seen. And we have been looking at the book of Mark now for weeks, and we're getting to this middle point of the gospel, and where this confession of Christ, this is the key verse of the scripture, this is the key passage of the scripture, this confession of Christ as the Messiah. To confess Jesus as Messiah means that he is the anointed one. He is the king of all kings. And that is a typo of my fault there. He is not the anointed ones. He is the anointed one, the king of all kings. And what I want you to get there is, is there was this expectation, there was this, an, there was this anticipation of who the Messiah was going to be. They had not connected the suffering servant passages of Isaiah with the Messiah. But the Son of Man that talked about in Daniel chapter 7, they had connected that. And you know, Jesus has used that phrase about himself, the Son of Man, throughout the book of Mark. The Son of Man was the one that, that would be coming at the end of the age to, to judge the world and, and to set his people free and to set Israel free. So they were looking forward to a, a conquering and a victorious Messiah. But even people like Peter and people like Andrew, if you remember, early on, Andrew said to Peter, we have found the Messiah. In other words, the disciples had no problems believing that Jesus was the Messiah, but their understanding was still growing. And before we get down on them, because they're with Jesus, how many of you like me will say, your understanding has grown a lot since you become a Christian? You understand more about the Bible, you understand more about Jesus and his work for us than what we did way back in the beginning. Uh, they say that the reason we use the word sophomore about students in college and in high school is because sophomore means you think you know more than you really do know. And as an early Christian, boy, when I had finished my first year of Bible college, I thought I knew so much. I couldn't wait to tell everybody. And then when I finished college, I couldn't wait to tell everybody what I'd learned about hermeneutics. I couldn't wait to tell everybody what I'd learned about pneumatology and eschatology and I found out nobody gave a rip what I had learned about pneumatology, hermeneutics, and eschatology. But what matters was, what does this message say to you and to me tonight? Here's what Jesus, here's what Matthew said. Uh, he recorded this. Mark doesn't record it. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now you may be wondering, why doesn't Mark include this in the gospel? I, I think, now, and this and a couple of bucks will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I think that this is Peter just being humble. I mean, this is a direct saying to Mark. Peter is dictating to Mark what to write down here. Matthew includes it, though. It's important that we see this. But it would have a way of seeming self-serving if, if Peter had said it. So I think that's what it is. I'm not sure, but that's kind of where I tend to lean at. However, I think it's important that we look at this tonight because, number one, you're going to see Jesus turn around and have some sharp words for Peter in just a moment. But Peter knows this because the Father in heaven has revealed it to us. Secondly, upon this confession, Jesus is going to build his church. Ecclesia, the church, means the called out ones. 
He also says to the church, he's going to give the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So there's a lot of powerful imagery and a lot of powerful truth here that we need to catch hold of. And then it says, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Again, Mark left this out, I think specifically because Peter didn't tell him to. So why is the cross so controversial? The cross contradicted all the disciples had expected of the Messiah. The cross contradicted all that the disciples had expected of the Messiah. They were not looking for a suffering Messiah. They were not looking for a suffering servant. They were looking for a conquering hero. They had an agenda. The agenda was to kick the Romans out. The agenda was to establish uh, the kingdom of Israel the way that it had been during the days of David and Solomon. They wanted to see the kingdom once again come. They had an agenda. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can bring our agendas to the church. Did you see what I'm saying? We can bring our agendas to Jesus because we expect Jesus to do it this way rather than remembering he is Lord and we are not. A good friend of mine who happens to be in the hospital tonight needs our prayers, but he was telling me he went through a heartbreaking uh, time at his church some time ago, and he said, you know, he said, I, I had a group of people come to me and say, you know, when we called you, this is the agenda we had for you. And he said their agenda was not biblical and it was not New Testament. And he said, it just broke my heart that here these were people who were Christians. They loved Jesus, but they had an agenda. And I won't go into their agenda, but their agenda was anything but the gospel. It was all about, you know, accumulating more for ourselves, building a name for ourselves, everything that went contrary to the gospel. And it broke his heart, and he just had to preach and teach his way through that. I have to be careful sometimes when I come to the Lord in prayer. We talked about this last week in the midweek service, that I don't try to tell God how to do what I'm asking God to do, okay? I'm asking God to heal Josiah. I would like to tell God how to do it and when to do it, and tonight would be great, okay? That's just the way that it is. So the cross contradicted everything. And you and I, we glory in the cross. Paul gloried in the cross. I read that again today, how that Paul just gloried in the cross. He said, if I'm going to boast anything about anything, I'm going to boast about the cross. And as I was sitting this afternoon praying and thinking about the service, a friend of mine, a Jewish friend of mine, his name is Adam. Adam called me this afternoon, and, and, and I said, he asked me, he says, what are you doing? I said, well, Adam, I'm getting ready to preach about uh, Christ going to the cross and, and where Peter made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah. And he goes, oh, I said, Adam, can I ask you a question? I said, I know that the cross was, so many Jewish people were put to death under the cross by the, by the, the Catholic Church. There was a time where people were, were just, you know, Jews were being murdered basically with the cross being there. And I said, there was a time when other people, for instance, the Russians were told, if you don't or if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus, we're going to kill you with the sword. And, and it was all done in the name of Christianity. It says, Adam, for me, the cross is something very precious and something wonderful, and I treasure. And, and then I read to him a quote by a, 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 Jew, a Messianic Christian. I says, do you find the cross offensive when I talk about it? <clears throat> and Adam said these words to me, and I think these are important words for us. And I asked for his permission to quote him tonight. And he said, of course. He said, there was a time when, yes, 
the cross was very offensive. He said, because so many of my people had been put to death underneath the sign of a cross, and it was justified by some Christians. He said, but it's knowing people like you, it's building relationships with people like you, it's friendship with people like you that helped me to understand that's just not what you believe the cross is all about. He said, I don't share your faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but he says, I know that that's not what you think Jesus thought the cross was all about. And friends, I can't help but stress to you how important it is that we build relationships with people who don't understand the gospel because they have been told things and taught things that historically happened but were not the right thing that should have happened. Slavery was wrong. Can you say amen to that? But we, we, we have to deal with that fact, and the only way we can overcome those, those, those past errors is by seeking forgiveness, asking for forgiveness ourselves, and then building relationships where people know and see the love of Jesus Christ expressed in our hearts. Matter of fact, if you'll take a moment and, and look at this statement with me tonight. Facebook had turned down, and let me get to this part of my notes. Facebook had turned down a Franciscan University's ad that they were putting up about a program of study they had because it had the cross there. It had the crucifixion. And so Facebook said this was too violent, this was too gory, this, this, um, this, this crucifix, and so they were not going to allow it on their page. This was the response of the Franciscan University. And I took this from one of Becky Pippert's books, her latest book she wrote in 2020. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of these things. It was the most sensational action in history. A man executed his God. It was shocking, yes. God designed to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, according to Philippians 2.8. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross, left to die. All the hate of our sin and the world poured out in its wrath upon his humanity. He was God. He could have descended from the cross at any moment. No, it was love that kept him there, love for you and for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his Father in heaven. Now, Becky was using this in her book to talk about the fact that there are sometimes people misjudge us, but I'd like to take and use this illustration a little bit differently. Did you notice how the university did not argue with Facebook? Did you notice how that the university did not put down Facebook? Did you notice how the university didn't criticize Facebook? I can't say that I haven't always been that nice to Facebook because there have been times when I've criticized them. But when I read how this university responded to this, I thought they opened up a conversation. Because the moment we villainize somebody, the moment we demonize somebody, we shut off the conversation. And psychology has shown over and over that if I villainize you, I only cause you to be more convinced of the rightness of your position because of the way I treat you. So if I call you a murderer because you're pro-choice, I've only demonized you and now I've made you stronger in that conviction and so what I need to do is be able to have a conversation with you. And Jesus was all about always having conversations. 
And it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were demonizing Jesus and closing off the conversation. And so I thought what we see here is such a good illustration of how to continue to have conversation, but at the same time, understand that what we believe and what Jesus is going to say is even going to contradict some of our accepted American ways of life by the time we get to the end of this passage that we're dealing with tonight. Why the cross? Let's look at that. In verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, Jesus began to tell them the Son of Man must suffer. Would you circle that phrase, must suffer? Must suffer. Why is it that Jesus must suffer these terrible things? Why is it that he must be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law? How is it he would be killed, but three days later he would rise again from the dead? I mean, let's go back to what I opened up with tonight for tonight's message, and that is, how is Jesus going to defeat evil if he's killed, and how is a man going to rise again from the dead? Remember what uh, Nicodemus asked him? He says, how can you be born again? Can you go back into your mother's womb and be born again? I mean, these are shocking and confusing statements, but let's stop for just a moment, take a break, have a drink of coffee or a sip of coffee, or whatever you're drinking out there, we've seen demoniacs delivered. We've seen the dead raised. We've seen the hungry fed, the mirac two miracles of multiplying the fish. We've seen a woman with an issue of blood fed, uh, healed. We've seen all kinds of miracles. We're seeing the power of God demonstrated. The disciples still don't get it. They believe he's the Messiah, but he's the Messiah in the way they've always expected the Messiah. Does that make sense? He's the Messiah in the way that he's always expected the Messiah. Thank God they didn't have dating apps when I was growing up. But I've heard from some of our young adults and some of our older adults in the church that have used dating apps of how that they have hoped to meet Mrs. Wright or Mr. Wright on a dating app and they would go out and meet somebody and they wouldn't look anything like the picture they had put on their dating app. How many of you have heard those stories? They're legion out there, aren't there? Or they'll build up all kinds of things about themselves that are not true. In their minds, they had put an image on the dating app. They had put an image on the wanted Messiah app. This is what the Messiah was supposed to be. And Jesus is just going, no, this is not how it's going to happen. So why must Jesus die? Well, let's look at this passage of Scripture tonight from Colossians chapter 2. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all of our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This is why Jesus has to die for us. Let's look at it. Because of our sins, because there's a record of charges against us, that record of charges has to be dealt with. Only his blood will deal with that. That's why it says, by nailing it to the cross. There's also these spiritual rulers and authorities that are being battled. I mean, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. 
when, when Adam and Eve, Eve sinned against God, they literally handed over the keys of the kingdom. Remember, we talked about that just a moment ago. They handed the keys over to the enemy, and now Jesus has shamed them publicly by the victory of the cross. So three things I want you to see here. Number one, you see Jesus' perfect, unconditional love. When he's willing to die for our sins, you see his perfect and his unconditional love. Jesus doesn't require anything from us for us for him to love us. I'm not loved more tonight because of what I do. I'm not loved any more tonight. Listen, I'm not loved any more tonight than what I was before I gave my heart to Jesus. Just a few moments ago before I walked out here, I had the privilege of meeting with some of our young adults. They're going to be baptized Sunday morning, and I'm very excited about that. But one of the things I was telling them, Jesus will never love you more than what he's already loved you before you ever gave your heart to Christ. But what happens is, is we want to serve him, not to prove something, but it just becomes his life working in us. If we find ourselves not wanting to do that, then we need to come back to the altar and say, Lord, help me. There are times when I have to buy discipline, love. There are times when I have to buy discipline, forgive. There are times when I have to buy discipline, hold my tongue. But that's not the way I want to live is by discipline. I want the Holy Spirit to activate the life of Jesus in my heart and life so that it comes forth freely and lovingly and authentically. And you say, well, then why discipline yourself? Because that's a lot better than sinning against God and sinning against somebody else and a lot better than having to sleep on the sofa if I say something I shouldn't say to my wife. So his perfect, unconditional love. Now, notice this. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be loved. Secondly, Jesus was the only one who could die for our sins. Jesus was the only one who could die for our sins. And preparing for a series of messages I'm going to be doing next year on shame and getting ready for that, I came across some interesting psychological studies that I had never read before. And I just will share this with you kind of as a tease for what will be coming up next year. Um, I grew up in school. I trained, I worked in mental health and taught that morality is something that we learn. Morality is something that we're taught. But now we know that babies are born with a sense of morality already. They're born with a sense to want to love. They're born with a sense of wanting to be loved. They're born with a sense of, of something that makes them angry. I could go through a whole list of things. They've been able to study babies' brains that we couldn't study back in the 70s. Now we see that these babies have a sense of morality about them. So when we talk about shaped and conceived in sin, like David, David wasn't behind the times when he said that. None of us were born innocent. All of us were born with a sin nature. Now, those babies don't have the maturity to be able to make the decisions that you and I make as adults. The key is Jesus was the only one who could die for our sins because Jesus was not born with a sin nature. And Jesus, when he was born, not only had a moral nature, but had a pure nature. Jesus could be tempted, but he did not sin. D does that make sense? Everything in advertising is typically about tempting. I mean, think of your favorite dessert right now. I'm thinking of key lime pie right now. Think of a 
chocolate chip cookie on television. You see the steam coming out of it and the cup of coffee beside it. I mean, think of a car. You don't just see a car. You see a car with the top let down. You're cruising down the highway. Your hair is blowing in the wind. You just, everything is tempted. That's what we build our advertising on is upon temptation. Here's the point. Jesus lived in the same kind of world we lived in, but he was tempted and yet without sin. He was the only one that could die for our sins, and Jesus was the only one who could defeat the powers and the principalities that were in high places. Nobody could defeat the devil. We gave that rule and reign to him when we sinned against God, but Jesus was the only one that could defeat the powers and principalities. So what does this mean? Jesus won through losing. And this was not what the disciples expected. Jesus won through losing. When he lost and gave up his life, just for a moment, I want you to understand again, and I've already said this a couple times in the series, but let's understand it again. When Jesus gave up his life on Calvary, suddenly the sins of this world has become his. He was totally separated from God. Now, no matter what you think about hell, I tend to think of it as Jesus talked about it. It's a place where the fire's not quenched, where the worm dieth not. But to be separated from God, that is hell. To be totally separated from the one who created the universe. Not annihilated. There's nowhere where we're taught annihilation. But to be separated from God. To be separated from God is to be separated from one another. And this whole idea, Jesus was up, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can't begin to imagine the horror of that. But instead of saving his life, as, as the Franciscan University wrote, and as the scripture says, at any time he could have called for a legion of angels, what kept him there? It was love for you, it was love for me, it was to glorify the Father, it was to save us from our sins. Sin is nothing to joke about. Secondly, Jesus gained power and influence through serving. This suffering servant, by going to the cross and dying for our sins, the whole world knows his name now. The whole world is coming to know Jesus. There was an article in Charisma Magazine this week that just thrilled my soul. I, <clears throat> on Mondays, I was praying for my Muslim friends and asking the Lord to move in their hearts. And, and then Monday evening, I read this article in Charisma News of how that so many Muslims are coming to know Jesus right now. They're having dreams about Jesus. And uh, uh, one of, one of um, our former uh, executive presbyters for the Assemblies of God, Jim Bradford, and, and then uh, you may have heard the name Dick Brogdon before, we just got back from some nations where they had been working at. And the the number of Muslims that are coming to know Jesus right now is just absolutely incredible. Nobody remembers Charlemagne hardly. Nobody hardly remembers Nero. These are names that are just in passing today. And if you ask the average student, unless you're a history buff, you just don't know about that. But when Charlemagne's tomb was opened up and explored, they were stunned. Number one, they found his remains sitting on a throne, the crown on his head, on his, you know, his decayed head, and a Bible in his lap with his finger laid on one verse of Scripture. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
That's how Charlemagne was entombed. So I don't know if Charlemagne became a Christian. I don't know any of that. But what I do know is if he did confess Christ before he died, he's in heaven. Because here was a king that was supposed to be one of the mightiest kings of Europe with his, when his body was, when that tomb was opened up, saying, I guess, in effect, that I am confessing Christ as my Savior. And I know that bothers some people. I have some people tell me, I just don't think it's right that somebody can make a deathbed confession and give their heart to Jesus. You and I don't get to arbitrate what's right. God gets to make that call. Amen? And that's what the Calvary is all about. And the third thing I want you to see is Jesus gained the riches of glory by giving away all of his wealth. So it will make what he's going to say next. The book of, of Philippians makes this very clear. He gave up everything he became poor. He gave it all up. He was crucified naked for us. Look at how this flies. We're taught to win. Number two, we're taught to gain power. Number three, we're taught to get all we can and can all we get. So what you see here is Jesus just simply, not just defying, but overcoming the world's philosophy by his life and death. And so how does this defeat the world's systems? The world's power systems are defeated when people like you and me put their faith in Jesus. Calling the crowd to him in Mark 8 and verse 34, calling the crowd to him to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. So look at this right here. You've got to give up your own way. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to follow me. Circle those three phrases. You've got to give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. So Jesus is saying, basically, we've got to live like he, does, he did. What does this mean? Number one, I get a new identity. I'm a new man. You're a new woman in Christ. I get a new person. This week, I had an interesting phone call with someone and said, we have a real problem in society today. I, I have some interesting phone calls. You just should be a part of some of my phone calls this week. And I said, uh, what's our problem? It says... We have a problem, and, the think it, and they're thinking that part of the reason that so many people are committing suicide or just disappearing is because people do not have a chance to reinvent themselves. I said, I'm not following. They said, between social media and between, you know, our computers and our phones, our whole life history is known. People share their whole life history. So there have been times, say, for instance, after the war, if you were a deserter or after a war, if you did something you were ashamed of or if you did something you community, you could move somewhere else, you could make a fresh start in life, and you could reinvent yourself. And they begin giving me all kinds of historical accounts about this. And I go, well, that's really interesting. I said, I know this won't work in a community, but do you know what? That's exactly what Jesus gives us. He gives us a new identity. When we're born again, all things pass away and all things become new. And the person I'm talking to says, yeah, but that won't work if you're still in the same community. Oh, yeah, it works. But what you do then is you begin to live a new life and build a new reputation, and people see the change in you. Allah, when I did Rocky's funeral, I don't know if you remember when I did Rocky's funeral, how many people, I share this in the, in the sermon, how many people would come to me and say, you should have known Rocky before he came, became a Christian. You should have known what Rocky did before he became. Rocky stayed in the same community. He didn't run somewhere else to try to reinvent himself. He stayed in this community. He became who God made him to be, and he became a, a 
powerful witness for Jesus Christ. Give us more Rockies. Can you say amen? God is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people that will just trust him and receive the new identity. Secondly, you get a new agenda. What's your agenda? You take up your cross. And what does your taking up your cross mean? It means that all of a sudden, you're not trying to win. You're saying, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. You know, whatever happens, if it costs me my life, whatever it takes to draw close to you, Lord, that's what I want. Number two, you're not trying to build a name for yourself. You're trying to make much of the name of Jesus. And number three, you understand what Charlemagne was pointing to in the Bible when he says, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? It's not that God is against blessing us. I just recently preached on that. But that's not the main pursuit and the goal of our life. And then finally, I receive an eternal hope. I receive an eternal hope. Oh, there's so much more I wish I could spend time with on this tonight, but it's already 7.10, and I want to, to have time to have a Q&A with you this evening. Could I ask you this question, though, for those of you that are watching online or you're watching on Facebook this evening? Would you consider that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you? And would you consider tonight that you are loved beyond any possible way you could imagine how much you are loved. And would you understand how important it is if Jesus came and gave his life to die for your sins so that you could be saved, how important it is to commit your life to Jesus. To say that Jesus is Lord is not just simply to say a confession with your mouth. It's simply to say this, I want to take up my cross and I want to follow Jesus. And I hope you'll let me pray with you tonight and you can do that same thing. So would you join me in prayer tonight? And let's pray for those that are listening online. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just ask you that for each and every one of us, that tonight when we make our confession that Jesus is Lord, that we would surrender to you, we would take up our cross, and we would follow after you, Lord. And that we would be willing to lose our lives in order to save our lives. And finally this morning, Jesus, I'm asking you that if there are those listening tonight or listening later in the week that have never committed their hearts to you, that they would understand how deeply and how greatly they are loved by you. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Good night.